The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. I've titled this morning's message, Lifting the Veil. Lifting the Veil. Apart from perhaps weddings, most of us in 21st century America, we don't have that much experience with veils. Uh, there are, of course, cultures around the world that, where women regularly wear veils um, on a daily basis. But in, in a wedding here in, the 21, in 21st century America, a, a bride wears the veil to hide the beauty of her face until her husband, until she reaches her husband, when he can remove that veil and be the first to gaze on her unveiled face. And in those cultures where women still wear veils on a regular basis, the reasons are similar for why they wear veils. They, the women purposely wear those veils to hide uh, their beauty from the lingering gazes of other men. Historically speaking, that's always been the purpose for veils. The purpose of a veil is to obscure, it's to hide something. But veils were never meant to be permanent. The bride removes her veil when she reaches her husband, and even in the cultures where women still wear veils on a regular basis, uh, they remove their veils when they're surrounded by family or when they're at home. They, they, they don't wear, they don't go to sleep in those veils. They take them off when they get home. Well, in our text today, we'll be looking at another type of veil, but not one worn by women. But nevertheless, this veil, it served the same purpose. This, this veil was intended to obscure or hide. But just like veils that brides wear or veils that women wear aren't intended to be permanent, neither was this veil intended to be permanent. And by God's grace, this veil has now been removed. And so with that said, let's turn our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're there, say Amen. So the 18 verses in this chapter, I'm going to read those 18 verses and we'll dive right into uh, the passage today. Paul writes, he says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves or claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters of, on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze on Moses' face because of its glory, with which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end 
came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's the Word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Your living and active Word. And thank You, Father, that through Your Son, through Your Spirit, the veil has been removed. That we can read from Your Word. And as Your Spirit accompanies that Word, the veil is removed so that we can hear it and understand it properly. And so I pray now in these moments that we have together that You would use this time to Your honor and glory that the veil would be removed from all of our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And so my central idea for this message this morning is the New Covenant far surpasses the Old Covenant. The New Covenant far surpasses the Old Covenant. I have, I have two, two points this morning, uh, but the second point has seven sub-points. And so... Uh, but it, they'll be quick, I promise. They'll each of them be pop, 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 kind of bullet list. But my first point is this. What, what are these covenants? We, we, we read about these covenants. The authors of the Bible, including Paul, uh, who's the author of this passage, he uses this language of covenant. He uses that exact word covenant two times in our passage today. Uh, one time he uses it in verse 6, again in verse 14. In each of those, once he makes a reference to the new covenant, once he makes a reference to the old covenant. In fact, what Paul is doing through this entire passage that we're looking at today is he's comparing and contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. And that might leave some of us wondering, what, what in the world is a covenant? Uh, you know, and that's a fair question if that's where you're at. As a matter of fact, it's more than a fair question. It's, a, it's an essential question because if you don't understand what a covenant is, then you won't understand at all what this passage is about. So I want, I want to give us a, an understanding of what a covenant is and the definition I'm going to give you is not one that you would necessarily find in some theological uh, dictionary. But suffice it to say that a covenant is a relationship between two parties in which they make binding promises to one another as they work toward a common goal. All right, I'm going to repeat that one more time. A covenant is a relationship between two parties in which they make binding promises to one another as they work toward a common goal. All right? That's, that's what a covenant is. Marriage is an example of a covenant. The husband and wife, they make promises to one another. They exchange solemn vows so that they might work together toward a common goal, to the good of their relationship. And so marriage is an example of a covenant. And as we read the Bible, we read about many different covenants that have happened through the, through the course of time. There was, uh, for example, there was the covenant that God made with Noah. We see that in Genesis chapter 9. And the sign of that covenant was the rainbow in the sky. And then there's the covenant that God made with Abraham. And the, the sign of that covenant, covenant was circumcision. We read about that in Genesis uh, 12, 
12, 15, and 17. There's, there's the covenant that God made with Moses. Um, that's just throughout the book of Exodus. We see that through there. Um, and many people would say that the covenant with Moses was just an extension of the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant. Um, and then, of course, there's the covenant that God made with King David that we clearly see in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But all of this leads to the point where we have this new covenant. And while we might be tempted to think, when we think of the new covenant, we might be tempted to say, well, that's found in the New Testament. We need to be careful about how we think about that. Because while it's true that the new covenant is found in the New Testament, it's not exclusively found in the New Testament. The new covenant is revealed in the pages of what we call the Old Testament. In fact, we see it very clearly by name mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 31. We see it again in Ezekiel 36, both of those Old Testament passages. Both of them written some 600 years, nearly 600 years before Jesus came to this earth. But for our purposes today, when, when, I, when I mention and when Paul mentions this old covenant, we'll be referring to the covenant that God made with Moses, sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant, but most often simply called in the Bible the Old Covenant. God gave His law to Moses, and God told the people to obey the law. And I'll say more about that in just a moment, but that's the Old Covenant. And then, of course, there's the New Covenant. The New Covenant was inaugurated by Jesus. It was made possible by His death, burial, and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit now is the seal of that new covenant. And so these covenants, binding promises that God is making with His people, and according to our passage today, the new covenant far surpasses the old covenant in every way, which takes us to point number two. And that's to ask the question, well, why? Why does the new covenant surpass the old I suppose Paul could have simply said, you know, the new covenant surpasses the old. Take my word for it. After you know, he's an apostle, he could have just said, you know, period, full stop, that's it. it takes... But that's not what he does. In this passage, in chapter 3 here, there are no fewer than, there may be more, but there are no fewer than 11 contrasting statements between this is the way it was under the Old Testament, but this is the way it is in the new covenant, or the old covenant, new covenant, 11 times. Some of those 11 are repeating the same type of theme, so instead of having 11 subpoints, we only have seven subpoints. You can thank me later for that. Uh, but to each of these subpoints are going to be, again, rather short. Subpoint number A, not ink, but the Spirit. Not ink, but the Spirit. Paul opens the chapter um, in verse 1 with a couple of rhetorical questions. You know, are we beginning to commend ourselves to you again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? In the context of 2 Corinthians, what Paul is doing here is he's, he's asking if his boasting in Christ, is that really a way that he's just really kind of boasting in himself and the work that he's done among the believers in Corinth? But of course, that's not what he's doing. He's not, he's not boasting in himself. The way, the way the people in Corinth responded to the Gospel is, is evidence not of Paul's greatness, but it's evidence of the ministry of Christ. That's why he writes there in verse 3. If you look with me, he says, You show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. And this letter from Christ, he goes on to say in the, the latter half of verse 3, he says it's not written in, with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. And then he says it's not written on stone tablets, but on human hearts. Now the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant couldn't be greater, couldn't be clearer 
here. Because perhaps the signature moment of the Old Covenant was when, Paul, excuse me, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. When Moses was on Mount Sinai. And God gave those to Moses so that Moses could ultimately deliver them to the people. And how were those commandments given to Moses? You don't need to be a Bible scholar to know the answer to this. You just watch Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments and you know the answer to this. They, they were given to Moses on stone tablets. God Himself, with His own finger, wrote on those, ten, on those two tablets the Ten Commandments to give to the people of God. But there's more to the Law of Moses. There's more to the Old Covenant than simply those Ten Commandments, right? The Law of Moses would include the first five books of the Bible. And those first five books of the Bible, they're not all written, if you will, on stone tablets. They were written with ink. And so that's how the Old Covenant was communicated to the people of God. On tablets of stone and with ink. But Paul contrasts, he said, but the New Covenant, it was communicated by the Spirit of God and on human hearts. Listen to this passage from Jeremiah 31. I alluded to this earlier, but listen to this. Jeremiah 31, beginning of verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them from the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And in Ezekiel chapter 36, also alluded to this earlier, Ezekiel writes, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This new covenant, beloved, is better than the old covenant because the old covenant is written with ink. But the New Covenant is written by the Spirit of God on our hearts. That's the first reason why the New Covenant surpasses the Old. Second reason is this. The New Covenant is not in us, but it's in God. Not in us, but in God. Look with me beginning in verse 4. Paul writes, he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Beloved, this is so important. I don't want you to miss this. Our confidence, our sufficiency before God in the new covenant is not based in anything we do. Our confidence is through Christ toward God. And here's why that's important. If we continue, if we look to ourselves for our confidence, if we look to ourselves for our own sufficiency, sooner or later, and probably sooner rather than later, we'll begin to wonder if we're ever good enough for God. Because we're going to stumble in our walk. And I listen, we all stumble in our walk. And if our confidence is in ourselves, we'll begin to wonder if we're really, am I, am I really good enough for God? We'll think thoughts like, you know, man, if I, if I really loved God, 
would I be doing what I'm doing right now? Or if I really love God, would I even be thinking what I'm thinking right now? Have you ever been there, beloved? Have you ever been there? Have those thoughts ever crossed your mind? I know that they've crossed mine. I hope I'm not like the only person in this room that's thought that. But it's precisely here that we need to remember that our sufficiency and our confidence isn't grounded in what, what we've done or in who we are. Our confidence and our sufficiency is grounded in who Jesus is and in what Jesus has done for us. That's the second reason the new covenant surpasses the old. The third reason is that the new is not condemnatory, but life-giving. Not condemnatory, but life-giving. Look there, just the last half, the last few uh, words of chapter, verse 6. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Beloved, let's remember this. We're, we're all sinners, all of us. Christians, non-Christians, if you're a non-Christian day here, thank you so much for being here. If you're listening online... Thank you so much for listening. We're all sinners. But I want to distinguish today between two biblical concepts. I want to first talk just very briefly about the concept of accusation and then the concept of conviction. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we learn that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. The devil will throw his flaming darts at you, beloved, and he will make charges against you. He will accuse you. He will want you to believe that you don't really belong to God. After all, he'll argue, if somebody who really loves God, they wouldn't be doing the things that you're doing. That's what the devil does. He accuses us. And he even uses the law of God from the Old Covenant to make those accusations. The Spirit of God, on the other hand, never accuses us of anything. The Spirit of God rather brings conviction of sin. We see that in John chapter 16, verse 8. And as Christians, we should welcome that conviction of sin because it's life-giving rather than condemnatory. The Spirit doesn't want to condemn us, wants to give us life. And when the Holy Spirit's convicting of us of, of our sin, it's to bring us to repentance. It's to cause us to turn from our sin and return to God. It's not to accuse us. It's not to condemn us or to kill us. He does it to give us life. That's the third reason that the new covenant surpasses the old. The fourth is this. The new is not permanent, excuse me, is not temporary, but permanent. It's not temporary but permanent. Earlier in the service, Sarah read from Exodus 34. And in that passage, we, we learned how Moses came down from the mountain of meeting with God and his face was aglow because he had been meeting with God. In fact, his, his face shone so brightly that the other Jews around, they were, they were afraid to get near him. They, they were afraid to come near him. So Moses would have to wear this veil to conceal the glow from, that was coming from his face. And that's what Paul is alluding to here in verse 7 in our passage when he writes, the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. And he says, you know, a glory, by the way, that was always coming to an end. You see, because Moses' face, it didn't always glow. His face would glow for a while when he came back from meeting with God, but even then that glow would slowly go away. 
And so for Moses, the proof that he had been with God was his glowing face. It was ironclad evidence, if you will. I've been in the presence of God. But what do you think would have happened to Moses when the glow went away? Not only would Moses lose some of the confidence he had in himself, but the people would surely lose some of their confidence they had in him as well, wouldn't they? I mean, imagine if we still lived in a world, if we still lived under a covenant in which we could tell simply by your physical appearance how closely, you, closely you've been walking with God that week. Imagine so I get up here to preach one Sunday and you see my face is just shining. All right, and it's just all aglow. And you just say, man, they, they, Brian spends his time... You're taking notes. I mean, he's, he's been spending time with God this week. I'm going to do what he's doing you know, because he's been with God this week. But next week I come in here, I'm pale as a ghost. And you think, I don't need to listen to anything he's saying, right? Because he hadn't been with God anytime soon. Now, you might be thinking, you know, and as I thought about it, I said, well, you know, there might be some benefits to that type of system, right? But Paul gets at that as well in our passage. That's why he says at least four times in verses 7 through 11 that this old covenant, this old way of doing things, it came with its own glory. So, beloved, please don't leave here today thinking that Paul or I or anybody else that we're just, you know, throwing the old covenant to the side, that, that everything in the old covenant is worthless or a waste of time. That's not true. The Old Covenant did have its own glory. It's just that when you compare the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, the glory of the Old Covenant is just like, you know, not really. Right? The, old, the New Covenant just far surpasses the New Covenant. The glory of the Old Covenant, the glowing face that lasts for a little, but eventually it goes away. The glory of the New Covenant, on the other hand, came with the gift of the Spirit who lives within us and never leaves us. The glory of the new covenant, in contrast to the old, the glory of the new is permanent rather than temporary. That's the fourth reason why the new covenant is superior. Fifth reason the new is superior is because the new is not veiled but revealed. Look with me beginning in verse 12. And in verses 12 and 13, Paul tells us that he says we can, we can be bold Unlike Moses, we, we can be bold in our hope. We don't have to put this veil on like Moses did. Now, let me just say a very quick aside here. And I believe this aside has some uh, current cultural context. Since, As I alluded to earlier, the commissioners are voting on Tuesday about mask mandates. And like, beloved, I want you to know that the veil that's being referred to here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 has nothing nothing to do with whether or not we should wear a mask in a pandemic or not. Okay? Nothing. Zero, nada, zip. It has nothing to do with that. Now, I'm not saying that Christians can't make good arguments for whether or not we should wear a mask or not. We, we can. Okay? And then particularly when it comes to worship, we can make arguments about whether or not we should wear a mask in worship. We can make those arguments. But, beloved, please, please don't use this passage to say, well, look, it says we, are, we had unveiled face, therefore we're not supposed to put a mask. That is not that is not a proper application of this passage. Okay, so that's just a quick aside. But let me return to the text right now. This the old covenant is characterized by the need to wear a veil. And Paul writes that even in his own day, the minds and hearts of his countrymen who were still holding on to this old covenant, he says their hearts and their minds were hardened 
because the veil was still remaining over them. But through Christ, the veil is taken away. When a person turns to Christ, the veil is removed. This is why even to this day, sometimes you'll, you'll hear somebody tell a Christian, their Christian story and, and they'll, they'll talk about, you know, once upon a time I thought Christianity was hogwash and it was just all oh, hocus pocus and I didn't, I didn't believe any of that stuff. And then they'll say, and then I, I came to faith and all of a sudden those things began to make more sense. Alright, you've heard these stories. I've heard these stories. Well, what's happening there? Veil's been removed. Veil's been removed. And that's the fifth reason that the new covenant surpasses the old. Is the veil is removed and things are revealed. Number six. The new is not burdening, but freeing. Not burdening, but freeing. The veil that lies over the hearts of unbelievers actually creates a burden for them. The veil causes them to believe that they must somehow achieve. In their own power, they must somehow be made right with God. And so they meticulously keep the law of God in order to please God. But beloved, what Paul is telling us in this passage is where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's freedom. That, doesn't, that freedom doesn't mean that there's freedom to go on sinning without any consequence. That's not what he's talking about. Anybody who tells you that you can sin without any con- you just willfully sin against what God teaches and still be in a right relationship with you, that person just doesn't know what they're talking about. Plain and simple. It's not what this passage is saying. The freedom being referred to here is the notion of Christian grace. That we're saved by grace through faith. And grace means we're given something that we don't deserve. And so freedom means that I don't have to count on my good works in order to please God. I am free in Christ. His grace covers my sin. And that makes me free. So the sixth reason the new surpasses the old is that the new doesn't burden us with this unnecessary idea that I need to keep the entire law in order to be made right with God. But I'm free in Christ. I have freedom in Christ. Now finally, the sixth reason, or excuse me, the seventh reason that the new surpasses the old is this. The new is not stagnant, but transformative. The new is not stagnant, but transformative. Verse 18 is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. You've, you've heard me talk about this verse before. I just, I just want to read it again. Paul says, when we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In the Old Covenant, there was no means by which a person would be transformed. Because in the Old Covenant, all we had were words on a page. We had words on we had ink written down. Now, those words are important. They make up what we call our Bible today. So those words are important, beloved. But listen, apart from the Spirit of God at work through those words, they're just words on a page. In short, in short apart from the work of the Spirit of God, the Old Covenant, it leaves us stagnant. It doesn't provide that opportunity, that impetus for transformation. But with the New, 
as we stand there, Paul says, with our faces unveiled, beholding the glory of the Lord with the new covenant, we are being transformed into, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Make three brief remarks about that verse right there. First, Paul tells us that we're beholding the glory of the Lord. We're beholding the glory of the Lord. But who is he talking about there? Who is this Lord? There are really only two options that we could possibly put in there. Either Lord is referring to God the Father, or Lord is referring to God the Son, to Jesus. And not to make this a cliffhanger or anything, I just I don't believe Paul could simply I don't think he could possibly be referring to anybody else other than the Son here. This is the glory with which the Father has given his Son, has bestowed on his Son. Read Philippians chapter two. That at the end of time every knee will bow and will exalt because God has exalted his son. That's the glory that Paul is talking about. That's the Lord that Paul is talking about, Jesus the Son. Second, Paul tells us that we're being transformed into that same image. That is, Christians are being made more and more like Jesus every day. This is why, in case you've ever wondered, why we have as our church motto, helping one another become more like Jesus. Because we believe that God has given us the church so that we can help one another. We can press one another on to be more like Jesus. It's a work we do together. It's a symbiotic work. It's a work that happens organically in the life of a church as we live our lives together, as we press into one another. We're made more and more like Jesus. But third and finally, notice this, that this work happens from one degree of glory to another. In other words, we're talking about a slow cooker here. We're, not, we're talking about a crock pot, not a microwave. The work of transformation isn't something that happens overnight. Yes, yes, there are moments where we make radical, if you will, leaps forward. You see somebody that come to faith and, and, they, and, the, and they, they make a substantial jump from where they were. Those, those things do happen, yes. But on the whole... This work happens from one degree of glory to another. It happens, for example, when we experience deep and devastating pain. God's at work in your life when that's happening. It also happens when you experience glorious and thrilling victory. God's at work when that's happening. Make no mistake, beloved. The work of God is happening. We are being transformed. It's a promise of God. I am simply not the same man I was 10 years ago when I came here. And you're partly to blame for that. In a good way. I mean, I mean that's in a genuine... I, I thank you for that. Because God has used you to press into me to make me the man I am today. And I'm so grateful for that. Understand, God is at work in and through us even now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You so much for Your grace and Your kindness. I pray, Lord Jesus, that You would use this time that we have, these, even these few minutes, use it, Father, to mold us and shape us into the men and women that You would have us be. Recognizing all along, Father, this, um, this is a slow cooker process. It's not, not an immediate process. But Father, You are at work. 
And we thank You for that. And we pray, Father, we'd be patient to understand that You're at work and that You would help us to get to the place that You want us to get to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, on the first Sunday of the month, we regularly celebrate communion. That is, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And through our communion, this is part of God shaping us, friends. It's God shaping us as we take from the body and as we take from the blood. As we remember what Christ has done for us. And so at your foot, at the seat of your chair, you'll see a little uh, cup like this. On one side it has a wafer. On the other side it has a juice. There's, they should be. If you don't have one right next to your chair, you just find one nearby. Um, if you're a Christian today, if, you, if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus, and you've, you've been baptized, and you're saying, I love Jesus, and you, you're, you're a member of a church, wherever that might be, even if you're just a guest with us today, but you're saying, yes, I trust in Christ, uh, we want to invite you to participate with us. If you believe the same Gospel that we believe, that we're saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves, as a gift of God, we invite you to be a part with us. Um, but before we actually celebrate, I want us to, to, as a reminder, particularly here at the beginning of the year, to, to read our church covenant together and to remind ourselves that this is who we are as a people of God. And this is, this is, these are promises we make to, it, to each other. A covenant, remember, promises to one another. And so read this together with me. Having been brought by God's grace to repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to give up our self-support, and having been baptized upon our profession of faith, we renew our covenant with each other. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will walk together in Christ-like love, exercise affection, care, and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully strengthen. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for one another. We will work to bring up any who are under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and by a pure and loving example, seek the salvation of our friends and family. We will rejoice in each other's happiness and bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek to live carefully in the world, denying ungodly and worldly lives. Remember, we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave. So there is on us a special obligation now to lead and do with holy life. We will faithfully continue to work with the church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, and doctrine. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel. All we will, when we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus and the, and the love of God us the Holy Spirit through the God. You would start with the wafer side and just pull back that wafer or the cellophane. Jesus said, 
This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, thank you for your body given for us. Quite literally, quite physically. Thank you for loving us even to the point of death. Death on a cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On the opposite side, if you would, again, being careful not to wear juice, but pull back the cellophane to reveal the juice here, the fruit of the vine. And Jesus said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, again, I thank you for your grace and your kindness. Thank you for the shedding of your own blood so that our sins might be forgiven. And thank you for your death, burial, and resurrection that the gospel may be proclaimed to all nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Buddy Pointer is going to be at the back uh, ready to take... Where are you at, Buddy? There he is. He's going to be at the back ready to take a benevolence offering. And Oh, Absolutely. You may. You want to use the mic right here, brother? So getting the reader mic on for, for Lewis so that he can... Not that Lewis normally has a hard time for people hearing him, but just, just for the... For the we too want to recognize that this is your 10th year to be with us. And we want to thank you for the blessings that you have shown toward us as our pastor and how you have nurtured us and ministered to us in a loving, careful, thoughtful way with compassion and love. Uh, I remember a passage of Scripture that there wasn't a past of scripture actually, but as an elder that you began to teach us about the gospel. And I'm gonna I modify the words because it will fit me and not you. So I have to modify the words of it. You say the gospel is God's redeeming and reconciling a broken world and a fallen creature to himself by the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Holy Scriptures. It is to us we identify this. It is our core value. It is who we are, and every sermon that you preached, we have the gospel message. So we don't understand the gospel. We don't want to live the gospel. We don't know the reality of the gospel. It's not because of you, because we haven't been listening to the gospel message. So we want to say thank you so very, very, very much for being our pastor. And like I told you before, uh, I'm going to live another 20 years, and I want you to preach my funeral. Thank you.
you know this better than I do. That is one sweet man right there. Let me um, gather myself for a moment. Hear this word from Romans chapter 8. touches on some of the same themes that we just I just preached on. Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, notice this language, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. May the Lord bless you and keep you as we all continue on this wonderful, wonderful journey called sanctification. Um. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.